You guys may be seated. If you're following your bulletin, you'll see that we have kind of a, a service where we worship. We hear a little mini message. We worship more uh, a mini message. So that's how we'll be rolling this morning. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. The story of Jesus through the eyes of Dr. Luke. This is what we've been studying for the past nine months. And today, we wrap up our time in Luke's Gospel. Now, as a way of wrapping up, I wanted to remind us of what Jesus looked like, of who Jesus was through the eyes of Dr. Luke. And then in the middle of our time today, we'll take communion together, focusing on Luke's account of the Last Supper. So the story of Jesus through the eyes of Dr. Luke. Luke began his story telling us why he was writing this account. It's in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. He writes, Many have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write a careful account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you, you were taught. That's how Luke begins his story of Jesus. Now from there, we get to see good portions of Jesus' cousin John and, and what happened with him. Now John's birth was foretold by an angel of the Lord. Verse 19 in chapter 1, Then the angel said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. And it was he who sent me to bring this good news. Talk about a phenomenal birth announcement. A little bit better than those postcards we send today, which I'm, I'm not knocking, but to have an angel stand and say, hey, your baby's coming, that'd be pretty amazing. Now, while John was still in his mom's belly, Jesus' birth was foretold in a similar fashion. Verse 26 to 28, still in chapter 1. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Now at this point, 28 verses into chapter 1, it's kind of hard to miss that something amazing is taking place here. God is somehow reaching into our realm. He's going to put his fingerprints onto the tiny globe that we call earth, and he's going to become one of us. So Mary, Jesus' mother, went to visit Elizabeth, John's mother. Babies turned and twisted and jumped, and at the end of it, Mary sang this song. Verse 46, Mary responded, Oh, how my soul praises the Lord! How my spirit rejoices in God my Savior! For he took notice of this lowly servant girl. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One is holy, and he has done great things for me. Cousin John was eventually born, and awe filled the entire neighborhood. You see that in verse 65. And after nine months of God shutting John's daddy's vocal cords due to doubt, Zechariah broke into song as well. Verse 76 And you, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High, because you will prepare the way for the Lord. The word of the Lord told us in verse 80 of chapter 1 that John grew up and became strong in spirit 
And he lived in the wilderness until he began his public ministry to Israel. Jesus' birth was soon to follow with shepherds and angels and church baby dedications and prophesying over Jesus. And in chapter 2, verse 39 and 40, it says, When Jesus' parents had fulfilled all the requirements of the law of the Lord, they returned home to Nazareth in Galilee. There the child Jesus grew up healthy and strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and God's favor was on him. Time passes, and the next we see Jesus, he's 12 years old, and he's sitting in the temple with all the religious leaders. He's asking questions, and he's listening to them. It's pretty amazing what took place. Of course, we see time pass again, and years later, Luke continues the story of Jesus by telling us how John, who was now known as John the Baptist, how John baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. John had prepared the way for Jesus and his ministry. And what a moment that was. Chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. One day, crowds were being baptized. Jesus himself was baptized. And as he was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit in bodily form descended on him like a dove. A voice from heaven said, You are my dearly loved Son, and you bring me great joy. Dr. Luke continued his story with a lengthy genealogy, and he showed how Jesus spent time preparing for the rest of his ministry by fasting in the desert. There in the desert, he and Satan went toe-to-toe, both quoting Scripture at each other. And after 40 days, Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit, ready to teach and preach. He was rejected in his own hometown, After perhaps one of the shortest ever recorded sermons, Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus said, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And from that moment on, Jesus' ministry went into overdrive. He began healing people, paralytics and lepers, and casting out demons and calling a select group of people to come and follow him. Come, be my disciples, he said. Follow me. And they came. Now the people Jesus called and many of the people Jesus attracted were not exactly the cream of the crop. This often offended the religious people. But in chapter 5, verse 31 and 32, Jesus answered them, He said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. Jesus and the religious leaders ended up having a lot of conversations. Jesus was always willing to dialogue with them, but they didn't always like what he had to say. They talked about fasting. They talked about Sabbath. They talked about healing on the Sabbath. They they talked about money. Jesus was oftentimes pretty pointed with them, even criticizing them in chapter 11. They questioned where Jesus got his power, and they questioned what authority he had to do the things he was doing. Now, throughout the story, it seems like the religious people were the ones who had the most problems with Jesus. They were the ones that struggled the most with him, the ones who thought they had their faith figured out. 
The ones who were dead set on practicing their faith in certain ways. See, they had a religious box and they were content staying inside of it. Throughout all of this, Jesus taught some pretty amazing things. Things that reshaped the paradigm of faith. Luke chapter 6, verse 20 and following. Then Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, God blesses you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. God blesses you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. God blesses you who weep now, for in due time you will laugh. What blessings await you when people hate you and exclude you and mock you and curse you as evil because you follow the Son of Man? When that happens, Jesus said, be happy. Yes, leap for joy, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, their ancestors treated the ancient prophets the same way. Jesus continued his teaching, what sorrow awaits you who are rich, for you have your only happiness now. What sorrow awaits you who are fat and prosperous now, for a time of awful hunger awaits you. What sorrow awaits you who laugh now, for your laughing will turn to mourning and sorrow. What sorrow awaits you who are praised by the crowds, for their ancestors also praised false prophets. Jesus taught all sorts of things like this that would make the crowds scratch their head and and go, huh. Now in other times of teaching, he told those listening, love your enemies. Don't judge others. Produce good fruit in your life. He told them, build your faith on a solid foundation. Pray like He prayed. Don't be hypocrites. Jesus often taught in parables. In fact, parable after parable. He taught of a a farmer scattering seed and, and what soil was good soil. He taught of a lamp that is lit that should not get covered. And He taught about a surprisingly good Samaritan. He taught parables about rich fools, barren fig trees, mustard seeds, yeast, great feasts. He taught about a lost sheep, some lost coins, and a pair of lost sons. There were stories about shrewd managers, a rich man in Lazarus, persistent widows, people who went to pray, ten servants, and evil farmers. Now, though they may not have always understood what these stories meant, the crowds, they kept following Jesus. There were times when tax collectors and other notorious sinners would come and listen to him. And there were times when he was walking along when he would have to stop, turn around, and teach the crowds. As the crowds came, Jesus was blunt with them about what it took to be a disciple. Last week, we looked at the cost of discipleship. There was a time prior to that when it actually seemed like Jesus was trying to get people not to follow him. Chapter 9, verse 57 through 62. As they were walking along, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus replied, Foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place even to lay his head. He said to another person, Come, follow me. The man agreed, but said, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. But Jesus told him, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Your duty is to go and preach about the kingdom of God. 
Now another one said, Yes, Lord, I will follow, but first let me say goodbye to my family. Jesus told him, Anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. These are difficult teachings indeed. But even with these type of teachings, even with these type of warnings, people still kept coming, and Jesus still kept touching lives. He touched the life of a Roman officer who, who demonstrated great faith. He was anointed by a sinful woman. He raised a, a dead son of a widow out of the town of Nain. He had many men and women following him. You can read of those women in chapter 8. Jesus touched a blind beggar outside of Jerusalem. He went home with a short man who had climbed a tree to follow him. At one point, Jesus grieved over the city where he would be crucified. The city that housed the temple of his father. He knew what his fate would be there. Yet he chose resolutely to set out and go. Luke, in his story of Jesus, made it very clear that Jesus had a purpose to fulfill and he was going to fulfill it. Jesus would be betrayed by one of those in his inner circle, falsely accused and condemned. He would be beaten, tortured, mocked, and then crucified. The worst, most painful and humiliating way to die. And he died between two convicted criminals. Yet Jesus himself never once committed a crime against man, nor a sin against God. Luke's story would tell us of the confusion of the disciples after all that ordeal. But he would also tell us of the events on the road to Emmaus, where the risen Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, would walk with some of his disciples. And there he would clarify some confusion. He would appear to his disciples and remind them what they had had in their scriptures all along. Chapter 24, verses 45 to 49. Then Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of the name of his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent, was the message. You are witnesses of all these things. And now, Jesus said, I will send the Holy Spirit just as my Father promised. But stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. So Jesus arrived with some pretty amazing events, and his departure was pretty amazing also. At the end, those who had followed maybe understood a little bit more of who this Jesus person was. They didn't understand it fully. In fact, we today still don't fully understand what this story means as individuals, as a church, as two billion people who claim to follow Christ. God has reached into our globe and touched humanity. Now one thing we know as true, Luke's story is true. And just as Luke told us at the beginning of his book, over the last nine months we have dug in deeply so that we can be certain of everything we were taught. Go ahead and grab your Bibles again and turn to Luke chapter 22. 
is now that we'll look at Luke's account of the Last Supper. Luke chapter 22, verses 7 through 23. Now the festival of unleavened bread arrived when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John ahead and said, Go and prepare the Passover meal so that we can eat it together. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked him. And he replied, As soon as you enter Jerusalem, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. At the house he enters, say to the owner, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will take you upstairs to a large room that is already set up. That is where you should prepare our meal. They went off to the city and found everything just as Jesus had said, and they prepared the Passover meal there. Verse 14, When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. In verse 20, After supper he took another cup of wine and he said, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. But here at this table, sitting among us as a friend, is the man who will betray me. For it has been determined that the Son of Man must die. But what sorrow awaits the one who betrays him? The disciples began to ask each other, which of them would ever do such a thing? That's Luke's account of the Last Supper. This Last Supper was a Passover meal. A traditional meal that had been served and eaten for countless years. A meal that was close to the heart of every Jewish person. The Passover meal celebrated the way that God redeemed and saved the Israelites from bondage in Egypt. What God did through Moses and Aaron in the first Exodus, Jesus was about to do for the entire human race in his own Exodus. Dr. Luke had already told us that this was going to happen. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah met with Jesus in all of his glowing splendor. Just listen to how Luke describes it. He said, suddenly two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared and began talking with Jesus. They were glorious to see, and they were speaking about his exodus from this world, which was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. Did you catch that? They were speaking about his exodus from this world, which was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. One theologian writes, Now the judgment that had hung over Israel and Jerusalem 
The judgment Jesus had spoken of so often was to be meted out. And Jesus would deliver his people by taking its force upon himself. His own death would enable his people to escape. But escape from what? Our sins? The world? The evil that surrounds us? Our separation from God? I want you to notice something in this story. Something I had never seen before. In John's Gospel, Judas, the betrayer, slips away before the Passover meal. Leaving Jesus alone with His eleven disciples to, to teach them in peace. But in Luke's account, Judas is with them the entire time. Leaving some time after the meal. Slipping out, perhaps, unnoticed. Jesus spent one of the most intimate times of His earthly ministry in the presence of the man who would soon betray Him. Who would soon turn Him over to the authorities. And Jesus knew it all along. Yet He still chose to be present with all twelve disciples. To be fully present even with Judas. How true it is that we so often, even in all of our own noble attempts to be true disciples of Jesus, in all of our grand efforts to be holy as God is holy, even after some of our most intimate times with Jesus, how true is it that we still betray Jesus? We too have sat through the meal with the Messiah. We have drunk from the cup that He has passed. We have eaten from the bread that He has broken. And even so, we too slip away, often unnoticed, and betray our Savior. William Barclay, a commentator I use frequently, writes this. He says, Jesus Christ has at every communion table those who betray Him. For if in His house we pledge ourselves to Him, and then if by our lives we go out and deny Him, we too are traitors to His cause. If in His house we pledge ourselves to Him, yet in our lives we deny Him, we too are traitors to His cause. Even in our doing this, Christ still chooses to be fully present with us. And He chooses to take us back over and over and over again. And each time He calls us to remember. Do this, He says, to remember Me.